Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Hey, everyone. Ellie here. It's 2020, and we are back in the podcast studio. <sighs> Started the podcast in two wow. 2014. In wow, that's when I started it. 2014, and it's 2020. And today, we are kicking off this new year with a very, very important subject. I mean, we are just zeroing in on what matters most. Today, we are talking about the singular, most important thing our kids need from us as their parents. And so to walk us through that, I have Dr. Tina Payne Bryson on the podcast today. She is in studio. She is the co-author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which have been translated into dozens of languages, as well as The Yes Brain and two upcoming titles, The Power of Showing Up and Bottom Line for Baby. Today, we are talking about The Power of Showing Up. It is on sale January 7th, 2020. Tina is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice, and of the Play Strong Institute, a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopmental lens. She graduated from Baylor University with a PhD from USC, and the most important part of her bio, she says, is that she's a mom to her three boys. In discussing her new book, along with Dan Siegel, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. We're going to learn what does a healthy emotional landscape for a kid look like. You know, we hear that we should have a secure attachment with our kids, but what does that feel like? How do we know if we have a secure attachment? How can we show up for our kid who's acting out? How do we stay regulated ourselves when there is chaos all around us? And when, oh, let's say hypothetically, the big one hurts or hits, hits and hurts the little one, who needs our attention most in that moment? I also walk through the latest drama at our house at the Stekeels, and I have Tina walk me through it beat by beat. And Tina was very helpful in giving suggestions for how all of us can approach these moments that can seem real big. Okay, everybody, I will be right back with Dr. Tina Bryson. Should I call you Dr. Bryson? Tina's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, Tina. Yes. In The Power of Showing Up, you guys describe the need for the four S's. Yes. Can you please share those with our listeners? What are the four S's and why do our kids need them? Yeah. So, the four S's are safe, seen, soothed, which is a very hard word to say, and (laughs) secure. 
And really, the reason that our kids need this is based on some research that has been done over decades and decades and decades across many cultures all over the world. So we know it's a human thing and not a cultural thing. Um, And it's actually related to mammals, too. So let me just tell you for one second about this mammal thing. So if you're like a baby bear out in the wild and you hear some sort of predator coming at you, your biological instinct, which is called your attachment system— drives you to run as quickly as you can and get close to your mama bear or your attachment figure who will help you survive. And that is the purpose of our attachment system that is inborn in us as mammals. And so what's super exciting is that the research over all these decades has really allowed us to kind of clear away all the barrage of advice and this is important for our kids and this is essential and you should be doing these 27 million things as a parent Mm -hmm. to kind of clear all of that to say really there's one thing that is the best predictor for how well kids turn out and that is that they have secure attachment with at least one person which means when they're in distress when they are having a hard time when they feel fear you know when things are difficult that they have a person that they can go to that will help them be connected and protected. That's the bottom line. That really is the one thing our kids need most from us, and it leads to all these great outcomes that we can talk about as well. The four S's are a reflection of a secure attachment. Yeah, so when we talk about, so if I just say to you, like, Ellie, the thing your kids need most from you is for you to be a secure attachment figure. You're like, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? So that's where the four S's come in. The four S's are a way for us to think about what it means to provide secure attachment to our kids. So when we make our kids feel safe and seen and soothed, that is building that secure attachment. That gives them those repeated experiences, which, by the way, don't have to be perfect. We can mess up all the time, but if the majority of time we help our kids feel safe, seen, and soothed by us, then what happens is that their brain wires to expect that someone will show up for them when they're in need, that someone will see and respond to those needs. And so that's where that fourth S of secure comes from, is that that fourth S that we talk about is not like, oh, I feel secure about myself. I mean, that for sure happens when we provide secure Mm -hmm. attachment. But rather what Dan and I mean is that when we predictably most of the time help kids feel safe, seen, and soothed, then their brain wires to securely know that if they have a need, someone will see it and show up for them. and then eventually over time, they begin to expect that other people in their lives will do that. So that means they're going to choose friends and mates who do that for them. And then over time, they're also able to provide the four S's to themselves. Because at some point, they do leave. And they need to help themselves feel safe. At some point, they're alone in a studio (laughs) apartment in West Hollywood. (laughs) Or living in a van down by the river. Who knows? (laughs) My favorite sketch of all time. Yes, one of mine, too. Uh, yeah. He could have used some of the yes. – <laughs> Chris Farley in that sketch could have used yes. some of the four S's. Four S's, for sure. <laughs> he went about uh, his approach in a different way. Yes. And uh, so the yelling and threatening right. way that he does in that sketch, you know, you guys definitely veer away from. And we'll talk a little yes. more about that yes, yes. in a moment. Throughout the book, you talk about that part of our job as a parent is to support the healthy emotional landscape for our children. Yeah. 
what does a healthy emotional <laughs> landscape look like? That sounds like a daunting task, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> Especially when we're like, okay, I'm going to think about myself and I'm not sure I have an emotional healthy landscape, whatever that means. Um, yeah, so here's the deal. The brain develops what it gets practiced doing. And so when we show up in a moment with a kid who is having a hard time or who is having some awful behavior or whatever's going on, that if we can help them understand themselves and be able to express it, that leads to a healthy emotional landscape. And I think one thing that helps um, us understand that is to contrast it with what's not healthy. So we can think about that. So What's really interesting in the research on attachment is that there are patterns of attachment that we develop in our childhood and over time based on the kinds of relational experiences we have, first with our caregivers, then with friends and with significant others, romantic partners. And so the kinds of experiences we have influence how our brain wires for these relationships and sets up these patterns. So there are what we've been talking about with the four S's is what's called secure attachment. But there are patterns of insecure attachment. So one example is called avoidant attachment. And these patterns of attachment that develop really stay with us our whole lives unless we, something changes. And that's one really hopeful thing which we can chase down if we'd like to, is how do we change our own attachment mm -hmm. histories if we didn't get that kind of parenting from our parents? Because there's a lot of hope there. But in this avoidant pattern of attachment, you as a child basically kind of grow up with parents who are like emotional deserts. So let's say you have a parent who doesn't really have a lot of interest or attention given to emotions. They are like, you know, and I grew up with a parent who was like that. And so basically, he didn't have a lot of capacity for intimacy. He wasn't very affectionate. If my sister or I were upset or crying, he'd be like, you need to toughen up. And, you know, if you're going to cry, go over there and do it. He just didn't have any tolerance for emotion or so we didn't have conversations about, well, how does that make you feel? And what do you think you're going to do differently next time? We didn't have those kind of conversations. Dinnertime conversations were focused on the dog and the food and the neighbors and more surface level mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. But there was never any attention given to the internal world of emotions or feelings or those kinds of things. So one of the things that's super interesting is there's a, a research tool that's used that's called the strange situation, which is in a laboratory. You put a 12 to 18-month-old baby in there, and you have the parent sitting there with the baby. There's some toys in the room. The baby plays. And at some point, the parent is given the cue to get up and leave the room. They're gone for a short period of time, and then they come back. And so what we study is what does, how does the baby respond to that? They're in a strange situation, and their parent has just left them in this random room. Um, and then how do we understand what's called the reunion behavior? What happens when the parent comes back into the room? So with this pattern of attachment, this dismissing, or later in life it's called avoidant attachment, is basically where the parent dismisses the importance of the child's emotional experiences. And so what's really interesting is typically when these parents leave, the babies don't look like they're in distress. They just keep playing with the toys. The parent comes back in, and the baby doesn't really pay much attention to the parent. They just keep playing with the toys. And it might look like, oh, this is a really independent, secure baby. But when we take psychophysiological information, so we see the baby has intense stress level. The baby is super stressed out. But by 12 months of age, this baby has already learned not to seek help from their parent when they are in emotional distress. They don't cry. They don't reach for the parent. They don't go to the parent. Because what these attachment patterns do is allow us to, even by 12 months of age, respond in ways 
that get the best from our caregiver. Mm -hmm. And so that baby has already learned, don't show your need, don't show that you're upset because the parent's not going to respond very well to that. And then suddenly you're in your 30s and you don't know how to ask for help. And you have a podcast where you end up asking Kate Northrup, how do you ask for help? (laughs) Right. And so what happens is we have those repeated experiences where we actually don't have a parent who teaches us how to pay attention to our internal landscape. So we don't learn how to do it. Our brains don't learn how to wire for that. Unless we have another caregiver or someone else in our life who does that for us. Or unless we go to therapy and start exploring mm-hmm. that internal landscape. And that's the hope of this is if the, be- the best predictor for how well kids turn out, because it's actually how their brains get wired, is secure attachment with at least one person. The exciting thing is that the best predictor for how well a parent is able to provide secure attachment to our Mm -hmm. kids is not whether or not we had it with our own parents, thank God, Mm because 40% of us did not have secure attachment with both of our parents. So the best predictor for us being able to do that is that we have reflected on those experiences, reflected on the past and made sense of them and said, and are able Mm -hmm. to say, I had a parent who didn't show up for me emotionally. They kind of made fun of me or ignored me Mm -hmm. when I was upset or told me to go be upset by myself. Mm -hmm. And so that was hard on me. And I didn't, yeah, just knock it it off, knock it (laughs) off, stop crying, you know, don't be afraid, you know, just basically talked you out of all your feelings or were annoyed by emotions Mm -hmm. or annoyed by needs. And so that was hard for me. And I've had to reflect on that. And here's how I'm doing that differently with my kids. So Mm -hmm. it's not about whether or not you had it as much as it is about a making sense process and a reflection. And when we do that, it actually changes how our brains fire and wire when it comes to relationships. So it's super hopeful. I want to nerd out for a second and share this quote because you guys state it so well. It's, we learn to become who we are and even to know who we are by how we experience being in connection with our attachment figure. What you may have thought was a personal and inner private experience, like sensing your emotions and regulating them, or being aware of your memories about certain events, actually emerges from your social relationships with important others in your life. So when I read your book and in listening to you now, it's all about The power of showing up is about what is our relationship to the child. What matters most isn't even, you know, schools matter, but that's not what's most important. You know, the extracurricular activities, the brain games, even, you know, we want to vilify screen time and we can get into that too. But it's not, there are all of these other things that I think we're really focused on right now. And what matters most is that connection between parent and child and having them feel seen. Yes. I always feel bad bringing my poor mother always gets brought into this, (laughs) but definitely a dismissive attachment style. And you write in the book as well that oftentimes that's based on their own childhood experiences. And so when I'm able to look at how I was raised and see it through the lens of how she was raised and what she's working with and that there isn't, there is a very low tolerance for emotions because it wasn't safe for her to have them. Then I'm able to not feel bad about myself because for a long time there, it felt like personal rejection. Yeah. And I had a, a long time of feeling like I was too much. Right. When my six-year-old is in a 
what I want to say is histrionic state. Right, right, right. Like really over the threshold and yelling things at me. Right. And calling me names right. and doing things that are not acceptable. And I'll right. say, I won't, I won't let you. Hurt me or hurt I, Yeah, talk uh, you can't like talk to me right. like that. I have a very difficult time. And I'm guessing that's because of how I was raised. Because part of it is like, she gets to have this big blow up. I never right. got to have my big blow right. up. What do you suggest parents do with yeah. all of that later? Because yeah. I'll tell you, Tina, I'm great in the moment. I'm like an all-star. <laughs> but it does wear down on me. Oh, and I think there's a lot of people and a lot of fathers who were never allowed right. to have big feelings. For sure. And now those fathers are expected to show up and be you know, super supportive of all these big emotions when they've never been allowed to have that themselves. So where do they go with it? Yeah. I I mean, there's so much you just said that was so beautiful there that I I have lots of thoughts about. The first is, let me start where you ended, and then we'll maybe backtrack a little bit. That was was so good. There was Uh, so much there. My five-part series monologue. Sorry about that. No, I love it. I can hold it all, I think, mostly. Um, I can't. I forgot it But you're totally right. Okay, first of all, let me say this. Six-year-olds with histrionics wear on everyone, even if you had, like, beautiful, perfect, secure attachment. It's, okay. it, it can, it's basically, you know, we have this amazing thing called neuroception. That's Stephen Porges's term, which is basically where it's not your conscious thought, but it's like your nervous system and the lower parts of your brain that detect whether there's threat or safety in the moment, every moment. And when you have a six-year-old who is screaming at you or hitting you or whatever, your neuroception starts to kind of go into, it starts activating more of a threat response. Like you go into hyper states of arousal, your heart starts beating faster, your muscles start tensing up, you might feel it in your jaw, you might breathe a little faster. So we have this nervous system response that's there and that's good when there's truth, that's threats, not so great when it's just a six-year-old throwing a fit because her Barbie's hair is tangled or her, Because she's not allowed to watch the new Dora the Explorer movie because her sister's two and a half and it's not right. appropriate for her. Right, Well, look, <laughs> yeah. She, and let her know she's not missing a whole lot. So it's okay. Um, so that won't do it, though, because when you tell kids, like, you, you, this is not something to be upset about, that never works, right? No. Okay, but here's the thing. So it wears on everyone. So we can— we can blame your childhood, but we can also just say that's a universal experience, okay? And you're right. That's what I have a lot of parents who will say to me, like, I know what not to do, but I don't really know what to do. So let's say in that moment, your six-year-old, she's yelling at you. I hate you. You're so mm-hmm. stupid. I'll give it to you. Daddy promised me when the billboards were that we would take me to see it. And now it's out of the theater. And now I want to watch it right now, and it's fine. She doesn't, when she falls, she's okay. When the knife's out, it doesn't hurt her. Like, and why is everything whatever my sister wants to watch? Uh, beautiful. Okay, first of all, <laughs> I'm really impressed with her because that's some awesome logic yeah. and ex- uh, great executive function. So, like, we'll celebrate <laughs> yeah. her brain development already. Mm-hmm. So, the the thing is, in the moment, is that any particular behavior we can think about as a back burner issue. Okay, so we have to tend to the back burner or it burns or spills over. Mm. But connection, joining, relationship is front burner. And let's for sure talk about how doing what I'm about to say is not about being permissive. It's not about being indulgent. It's not about spoiling because boundaries actually help kids feel safe. So we're going to talk about how to do this with boundaries, too. But in that moment, the first thing you have to do is to make sure you're regulated, to make sure you are staying in, like, a calm state. Because her emotion is chaotic, and if you join the chaos, which is hard not to do because it's contagious, 
you actually are going to have a much harder time for both of you getting her back to calm. Mm -hmm. So you start jumping off of each other because the brain is such a social brain. We just talked about this. They're not individual experiences. It's all connected. So in that moment, the first thing you do is you make it so her internal experience and the way you respond are a match. So you say, you're so frustrated because you thought you were going to get to see it. So you're feeling disappointed. Is that right? So you you basically just try to help her come up with a way to understand, use words about what the emotional experience is. So she's talking about, I'm mad about all these things. Dad said the billboard, and now it's out of theaters, and I've totally missed out. And she's got, you know, all these mm-hmm. things. And so you can say, oh, you feel like you missed out, and you were expecting that. It's so disappointing. And you feel like it's not fair for your sister to have to, get, you know, be part of how we make these decisions. So you really meet her in the moment where she feels felt, mm-hmm. where she feels like she's understood. Then you can move to the problem solving. You know, then you can say, you know, do you have any, we want to make sure your sister isn't, she's not ready for that. So do you have any ideas about how we could make this work? So you move into the problem solving. Or if you have decided, so it doesn't have to be a negotiation either. If you're decided, I know you thought that and we promised that, but we've changed our mind. Or, you know, it's not going to work this time anymore or whatever. It's totally okay to say, I know you thought that was going to happen. You're so disappointed. It's not going to happen. And I know that's really upsetting. And so then you're basically like, and you can cry and yell if you need to, to express all those Mm -hmm. big feelings. And I'm right here with you as you express them. Doesn't mean you change your mind about the behavior. Okay. Quick pause. Yes. Because we're working through this. Okay. Okay. Did you know this was a free consult for me? (laughs) (laughs) So I did that with her. Then she goes towards the bathroom and she starts gently banging her head Mm -hmm. against the door saying, I'm so stupid. I'm Mm -hmm. so stupid. I'm so stupid. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully listeners can follow this train of thought. (laughs) With my two-year-old last year, she started doing that Uh on the floor. And uh, my toddler teacher that I go to every Friday afternoon with Eliza's Janet Lansbury. And she, I love her. Isn't she fabulous? I love her, yeah. yeah. She had said, place a little blanket under or something to keep her yeah. safe, but don't have a big response. Yeah. Because then she's wanting that response. Yeah. And it worked and she stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. So back to my six-year-old banging her head on the bathroom door. Right. Saying, I'm so stupid. I've got a couple options there. I can ignore it. I have a feeling that she wants me to say, you're not stupid. Right. You're not stupid. I'm, But then that feels like it could lead to her doing that again in the future right. Right. to get that response right. again. Well, okay, a couple things. One is sometimes we get really off um, target when we – assume that attention-seeking is necessarily a bad thing. So if we think Mm -hmm. about this from a neurophysiological thing, if you don't have your parents' attention, go back to like primitive, let's go back Mm -hmm. to the baby bear cub again, okay? So this little mammal, if that bear cub doesn't have its parents' attention, then it's more in danger of getting attacked by a predator. So the need for attention, especially when we're little, um, but it happens throughout the lifespan, but especially when we're little and vulnerable, The need for attention is as much of a need of survival as is food and water and sleep. So I think sometimes we're like, oh, that's attention-seeking behavior. That'd be like, oh, you know, she needs food sometimes. Like, it's kind of funny when we really Mm -hmm. start looking at what it is. So 
when a child is seeking attention in some way, that's basically, we can think of it as that's a need. Right. And if we ignore it, then what they have to do is amplify the behavior to get the need met. So if I'm in that moment, though, and I hear you with that, yeah. because sometimes kids will do that when right. there is a disconnect. Right. But if I've just been down at her right. eye level, right. trying my best right. Tina at her, <laughs> and then she escalates right. it into the self, right. well, I'll project onto her, into the self-loathing right. stage of things. Right. Does that mean she needs even more? Okay, so not necessarily. So here's okay. what I would say. One is when she is doing that, um, if you – so she might want you to do something, and then sometimes it can trigger an oppositional response, and that's where we're like, well, I'm not going to give her what she needs because I'm going to win here. Or, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm super competitive, and so sometimes that stuff drives me. But what I would say is I think kids who – and every kid is different, but kids who have a lot of big feelings and who are hyperverbal, which it sounds like she oh is. Oh, my God. <laughs> and she probably does a lot of talking and a lot of thinking yes. and a lot of internal processing, and you've done a good job of helping give her the vocabulary to do that. That sometimes it can – I think it's not helpful to wallow and get stuck in it and to stay with our kids in it too long. So what I would say is – I wouldn't say you're not stupid. I think that when she's doing that behavior, she's doing that because she's dysregulated. Her nervous system yeah. is in a heightened state of arousal. She needs – so this is where you want to help her feel safe. Mm -hmm. You want to help her feel seen, like, I get what you're experiencing right now. Or I'm, and then the soothing is, I'm here to help you, okay? Mm -hmm. So then she knows when she's in distress, she can count on you because you're going to show up in the moment. So what I would do is I would go in, and I would put it in a blanket or put a pillow there, and I would say – and this is from um, the whole rain child where we, instead of saying you don't feel that or you're not that, that we would talk about it being a feeling. So remember state versus trait. So state is what you feel in the moment. Trait is who you are. So she's saying, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. You can reframe that and say you're feeling stupid right now. Knowing that she's dysregulated in the moment. So you just, you match what she's feeling. Then you can say, I don't want you to hurt your head. Or you can just say, you know, it's, it, sound, it feels like you might need to move your body. It looks like you might need to move your body a little bit. Do you want to go outside for a walk? Or do you, let's go see if, I think I hear some birds in the backyard. Should we go see if they're there? And so you, you, it's, it's not that you're distracting her from her feelings. You're saying you're feeling stupid right now. What I would say is when kids are dysregulated and you have behavior that you don't like, whether it's disrespectful, I hate you, which is funny when we say like, you can't talk to me like that. It's kind of a funny thing to say because they can. They just did. Yeah. Right. You know, totally. Like, so um, so to, you're addressing her feeling like you're feeling really stupid right now and be like, sometimes we all feel that way. Um, let's go outside. It looks like you might need to move your body. That might help you. And take her outside, move around a little bit or, you know, say like, let's play keep it up with a balloon or a ball or something. Get her moving. Or if she's more of the oppositional type, don't say, let's go do this. It'll help you feel better because she'll say, no, I don't want to do it. You just hit the ball or the balloon to her. Instinctually, she she'll hit it back and then you get her moving, which, by the way, movement helps release nervous system arousal too, as does laughter. So if you can bring in silliness and laughter um, um, or, you know, even in the moment, like depending on how dysregulated she is, be like, I've never tried banging my head like that. Like, does that feel good? Like go over and like kind of be silly and like going to do it gently yeah. yourself. Um, and then rub her back and soothe her. Then when she's back into what we call the green zone, right? When she's back to herself, her nervous system is more regulated again. You can say, you know, you were saying you you felt stupid. Tell me about that. And mm -hmm. bring curiosity into the moment. Um, I wish my parents had um, helped me be curious about my internal world and then learn how to ask, what do I need right now? 
right? So you and I both have a kind of a similar Mm -hmm. story with that. And that is to say, you know, you were saying you feel that. What was that about for you? Or let's be curious about that. What, What was going on for you? And then to say, when you feel like that, what do you think you need? What is it you need? And then she can learn how to start asking that for herself. So that is an opportunity. Those moments are opportunities for growth and development. And I will say, we don't and can't use every moment as a lovely time to build emotional skills. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're just done. And sometimes you just, you know, you can't sometimes have a whole reflective dialogue and share feelings about putting shoes on when you're late and getting Mm -hmm. out the door. Sometimes you can say, we've got to go. I'm grabbing your shoes. We'll put them on in the car. And you grab them and you put them in the car. And maybe they have a meltdown. You can say, I know you're so disappointed we had to rush out the door. And if you need to cry, go ahead. I'm right here with you while you cry. That's very helpful. What do you do if it's the younger (laughs) sibling? Yeah. Because someone's usually been hurt. Right. There's the victim and the perpetrator, and the victim at times with this style, I feel pulled in two. Yeah. Because they both are hurting, and they both need me. Yes. So when they're a little bit older, it will be a little bit easier because right now you can't leave a two-year-old alone to go regulate your six-year-old. You can't leave Mm -hmm. him alone, her alone in a room. So I have three boys, so I always say him. I can't help it. Um, so it's a little bit harder when they're younger. But one of the things I found myself doing, and I have three, and they're all three years apart, is that I would be like, you're hurt and upset. You're hurt and upset. You're hurt and upset. I'm upset, too. We're mm. all upset together. Why don't we play? Let's I get the balloon. I mean, why don't we play keep it up? And then we'll talk about it in a little while. And I would really just move the heck on. And then when everybody's regulated, we can go back and and say, you know, when you hit your brother— that really hurt him, you know, and what, you know, I know, you know, it's not okay to hurt somebody. That's the phrase I use a lot. I know, you know, it's not okay too. So what was happening for you? And what I'm asking them to do is do like a rep, like lifting a muscle Mm. for that emotional part of their brain to have some insight, to think about what was going on for me. Oh, you and be like, I was really mad. Yeah, you were really mad. And when you got mad, how did you know you were mad? What did that feel like in your body? And you talk about that. And then you can say, you know, but you really hurt him. How can you make it right? What can you do to go make it right? Now, in the moment when they're pissed at each other, yeah. they wish they had hurt them more. They have no access to empathy. <laughs> right. And if you're like, go tell your brother you're sorry, they're going to find a way to get another zinger in. And so that's not the time. Timing is everything. And so, you know, in the moment, you might just be like, and you know, there were times, especially driving in the car, where I'd be like, you're mad, you're mad, you're mad, I'm mad. We're not talking to each other right now because what we say will not be kind. So we're mm. just going to sing. And I'd put the music on. I'd make <laughs> up words, usually with body parts and body functions, which worked really well for laughter. Um, and then we would come back to it. So when they get older, though, and you can leave them alone in a room. So, like, I have this great moment that I remember. So my my little guy was five, and um, his name is JP, and Luke was eight. And um, Luke came running in my bathroom, and he was like, JP5 starred me. And I didn't know what that meant. Do you know this word, this phrase? It's like you slap someone so hard, you leave a handprint, so it looks like the five points of the star. So um, I lifted Luke's shirt, and I saw JP's fat little handprint on there. And Luke couldn't see it, so I took a picture of it to show Luke. So I first—and JP's right outside of my bathroom— and I comfort Luke, and I'm like, oh, that looks like it really hurts. You know, do you want me to put a cool rag on it? He's like, no, just go deal with him. <laughs> so now's the now's the time, right? Now's the moment. I've got to deal with it. So I come around the corner to deal with the perpetrator, and JP's standing there, and he is a fuming, you know, little red zone. I mean, he's like a volcano. He's, you know, he's like, <sighs> and his muscles are tense, and he's beet red, and he's just furious. 
And so, you know, my instincts in that moment to be like, why would you hit your brother? And I ask a question, but I'm not really asking. I'm just lecturing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I'm mad. Like, I'm trying to get ready. They interrupted me. They know not to do this. You know, it's been 16 (laughs) other things. You know, I'm mad. So um, that's my first instinct. But I know that amplifying the chaos is going to make things harder on me and them. So I take a moment. I put a hand on my chest and a hand on my belly and apply a little bit of pressure. And then I take a breath in that is shorter than my exhale. So hand Mm -hmm. on chest, hand on belly, breathe in like to a count of like four and then breathe out to like a count of six. When your exhale is longer than your inhale, it actually down-regulates your nervous system. And what's been funny about that is, and putting your hand on your chest and belly, um, is actually really soothing to our nervous systems. Now, when I do it, my kids know I'm about to blow up and that I'm trying to regulate myself. So it's a good little warning sign. But anyway, it does help me. So I did that. And then I say to JP, because my other instinct is to be like, well, you, you know, to throw out a consequence. The first thing that comes to my mind, like now you're not having a play date today because you clearly can't be with people, Mm -hmm. whatever comes to Mm -hmm. my mind. But instead in that moment, I responded to him. If he were, if he had scraped his knee, I would respond easily with nurturing. I would respond easily with the four S's. But when it's behavioral and and more emotional, it's a little harder. So I say to him, oh, sweetie, you're so mad. What happened? Come here. Now, he's the perpetrator and know that I'm going to be addressing the behavior because that was not okay. So he, you know, he kind of slams his body into me, you know, because he's just like, oh, and he's got all that adrenaline going. And he starts to tell me the story about how they were on the phone with grandma and Luke told the whole, took over the story and, and I was like, and I wanted to tell the story. And I told him I wanted to tell the story and he made fun of me. So I five-starred him. And so I say, oh, that must have been so frustrating. That, that happens with me and my mad. husband at dinner parties. <laughs> yes. Like, you could, maybe you should try five-starring him. He might like that though, actually. Um, so anyway, I say, you know. You, different you, podcast. Different podcast. <laughs> Um, so I say you were, that would have made me mad too. Of course that made you angry and it's okay to be mad, but it's not okay to hurt Luke. So, mm-hmm. um, so I just comfort him. Of course you were mad. And I rub his back and I give him a couple of minutes. His little body starts to relax. His breathing goes back to regulation. I'm just kind of tracking his little nervous system. So I know he goes back to kind of more baseline. And then I actually say, you know, you really hurt Luke. And I actually showed him the picture and then his little head dropped like he felt bad, you know, and I let him feel that emotion. That's a good emotion. It's not shame like you're a horrible human broken person, but like you did something that wasn't okay and that hurt somebody and that, you know, that affected him. And so how can you make things right? And I let him feel that. And so then he said, I guess I should tell Luke I'm sorry. And so, you know, I helped him do that. So what happened in the moment was, and we talked about how do you do it next time when you're mad so you don't hurt somebody. So you know, did I teach? Yes. And I helped him feel safe. Like, you're in distress. I'm here for you. Um, I helped him feel seen. Yeah, I understand you would feel that. Um, soothed. And I rubbed his back and helped him calm down. Um, and so he knows when hard things happen, I'm going to be there for them and him. And this is so important because when our kids become teenagers— they naturally pull away from us to some degree as attachment figures and their peers more become those people that they Mm -hmm. count on to show up for them. But if we give our kids experiences growing up where we tell them, what are you so afraid about? There's nothing to be afraid of, which lets them feel like she doesn't get it and I'm on my own. She's not going to help me with this fear. Or we tell them, stop crying. You're being so sensitive. Or we say these kinds of things. Or we say things like, Um, if you're going to cry or be unhappy or throw a fit, you go to your room and do it. And when you're ready to come out, you can come back out. These are all things we say and do all the time as parents. 
But the messaging of those kinds of things repeatedly says, you're on your own, I'm not interested, or I can't handle it, I can't handle your big feelings, I'm not interested in them, or I can't tolerate them. And so you're on your own. And guess what? They internalize that. And when they become teenagers, they don't come to us as readily, especially when something bigger is going on. So it's really important that we give them those experiences of being safe people for them to have big feelings with and to show them that we can handle that. And when we don't handle it well, which none of us do all of the time, when we blow up or we freak out, my family refers to a moment where I was playing games with the kids. I don't remember the details, but I remember at some point I threw the dice across the room and we now refer to it (laughs) as the Yahtzee incident. So we have these incidents. And so what happens, though, is when we have these ruptures and when we mess up and we do all the time and we let our big emotions take over, the key is repair, repair, repair. Well, you said you were competitive. Yeah. They I should know that. I know. I am. I am. It's, it's, it's a little much. But. So with the repair. Yeah. With the example you just gave me with the five star, that was a moment once he calmed down that you were able to immediately or, or pretty quickly go to how can we fix this or yeah. how can you address this? Yes. If you have taken the route of playing with a balloon or going outside or something like that, is bedtime the appropriate opportunity to then follow up? It like, can be. When do I tell her again that she can't call me names? Because yeah. no, she doesn't call anyone else names. And then I'm on this path, and that's the one thing that gets me, because I know when other people are around, yeah. then everyone's just thinking, permissive parent, right. permissive parent. Right. And that gets me going more than the actual— right interaction with my child. It's right. the judgment of others mm-hmm. about how I'm right. doing my so job. So then you start parenting to the audience as exactly. opposed to being present. Which is so messed Me up too. and I can't do it anymore. Me too. It's no, it happens to all of us. It's 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 messed up in and it's totally human. So one parenting thing, to the audience that is so yeah. Good. Yeah. I remember having this moment where, you know, I did a lot of reflective dialogues and like whatever, but I also have really good firm boundaries. And, you know, I think permissive parenting is not good for kids. And I know that I did a dissertation on that. I know it. And I'm really good at boundaries. And I would find myself if I was a lot of people in the world don't understand that you can be emotionally attuned and present and have reflective dialogues and soothe your child's nervous system and have good boundaries. People don't understand how those go together, and they absolutely should go together. And we can talk more about how. But I remember one time my cousin was at the house, and I was, you know, he, and my, this cousin doesn't have children, so you know, easier for him to judge. judge. <laughs> so with Ben, you know, I was saying it's not okay. You know, you hurt mommy. You have to be more gentle with mommy's body. And and you know, I just I was noticing, I was feeling myself knowing he was in the room, and so I responded heart more harshly to Ben mm-hmm. than I would yeah. have otherwise. And so then I'm totally not. My and then and also my kids like you're so not authentic. What are yeah. you doing, right? So the first thing is anytime you can, when there are people around, address stuff with your kid privately. Do that. First of all, if I'm at a party with my husband and I wouldn't double dip, but let's say he thinks I double dip, and he would be like, "Dude, you just double dipped," and he said that loudly, or like 
Yeah. I would be so pissed at him. Yeah. And we do that with our kids all the time. We address their behavior mm. in front of other people, and it's embarrassing to them. We shame them in that moment. So go over, get down low, whisper to your child's ear, or take them away. The other parents or other people are like, oh, good, she's addressing the behavior. They don't know that you might even be bribing your kid. I will give you gummy bears <laughs> if you stop, right? Like, whatever you're doing. But at least you're. it's it's reminding you that you are not parenting to, to an audience. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that, you know, we really can— hold those boundaries. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I love to tell a story about a time JP was in the bathtub and didn't want to get in and then didn't want to get out and was having a meltdown. And, you know, and a way that we hold that like four S's and the firm boundaries is to say, you know, it's time to get out. You can get out or I will help you get out. He doesn't get out. And as I lift him out, he's screaming and yelling, mm-hmm. calling me names, being disrespectful. And I say, you're so mad right now. It's okay. You're disappointed about getting out of the tub and I'm right here with you as you need to cry. As he gets out, then he calms down, and I address it right then. And I say, you know, when you talk to me like that, and when you say those things, it hurts my feelings. It makes me feel bad. I don't like that. Is there a way, can we practice maybe when you're really mad and you're mad at me, what could you say? Could we even have a code word that you say to like, let's me, let me know you're really mad. So what should we say? Like, that way you can call me that name and we'll both know it's that you're just saying, I'm just really mad at you, mom. So you give them like another piece of language. In terms of when you address it, it can be at bedtime unless your kid tends to be really dysregulated at bedtime or they're overtired or you are. Um, I think the next time, I, I think sometimes we give too much attention to the bad behavior. Um, and so I would just say, you know, after she's done that, Maybe it's 30 minutes later and it's time for her to have a snack. And as you're handing her the apples, you can say, you know, can we tell the story of what happened earlier? Even a two-year-old can do that. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we've been told, like, you have to address the behavior right then and there. That's actually really old research mostly done on animals back in the 50s. Even a two-year-old, she's throwing a fit, throws her shoe at you. You're like, she's hungry. She needs a nap. You feed her. You put her down for a nap. After the nap, you can say, hey, let's tell the story when you threw your shoe at mommy's face earlier. And you can, you know, say that hurt mommy's face. You know, you were so mad. Um, but but be gentle. Don't throw shoes at mommy's face. And you address the behavior. <laughs> I'm smiling because this morning at 645, Eliza came into Sabrina's room and she immediately wanted to start sharing. Again, she's two and a half, sharing the story of, I wanted the book. It's a, oh my God, Howard Stern's wife has a book about a cat named Yoda, Beth oh, okay. Stern. And it has become our, my children's obsession. Oh, it's this, okay. It's, so it's not Yoda from Star Wars, but it's this cat. And it became this huge fight last night. And so the first thing this morning, Eliza comes in. She goes, I was so mad. Awesome. Because you took Yoda the cat. <laughs> I wanted it. And she was, but she wasn't mad anymore. But there right. was something. She wanted she, to make sense of the experience again. Yeah. yeah. And what's awesome and talk about it out that, with her. Yeah. And what's awesome about that is it shows, okay, first of all, when your kids call you names and fall apart with you and treat you terribly like they do with no one else, that's actually evidence of secure attachment. She knows she can't lose your love. So that's mm-hmm. that's a really good thing. You can remind yourself of that. But also what that story tells me is that your girls have had so many experience uh, experiences of that reflection and making sense of an experience and having an internal, you know, light shined in that moment that they not only have that as a tool to help them work through something on their own, but they also have been wired this idea that when difficult things happen in this family, we talk about it and we share our stories with each other. So that's really beautiful. I love that. 
Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Thank you. Can I go back for a second to one thing you said about your mom? No. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's good. And I think this is why these attachment patterns and styles, and, and in the book, The Power of Showing Up, at the end of each chapter, we have a section for us to reflect on ourselves. Like, did I feel safe? Did my parents show up for me? And we ask some of those questions. When I, I think everyone needs to know about this because when I learned about these patterns of attachment a long time ago, I was able to start understanding and making sense of my own family in a different way. And I, as I mentioned, my dad, similar to kind of what you were just talking about, is kind of more of an emotional desert. And when I understood this and started making sense of it, it was so freeing and healing for me because I was able to go, oh, it wasn't about me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't unlovable. Mm-hmm. It's not that he didn't want to hug me. It's mm-hmm. that his brain never wired mm-hmm. for how to do that. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden— Instead of resentment and anger and desperate need from him that really Mm -hmm. motivated a lot of my success, you know, so thank you, Dad, for that, Mm -hmm. um, to please him and to achieve Mm -hmm. so that I could get those strokes in some way, um, allowed me to feel compassion for him. Yes. And to feel compassion for his parents who did the best they could too, but they came from so much trauma. And so, you know, if there's no other reason to buy The Power of Showing Up and keep it on your bookshelf, it's so that someday our grown kids can read it and and give us compassion, knowing that we did the best we could Mm -hmm. do. And so I think, you know, it's so lovely because, you know, just the way you told that story was such a good um, example of how you've created a coherent narrative. Like, she didn't do that for me because she didn't know how, and she would have if she did. And so that means you've got the coherent narrative, which means your brain has wired to be able to provide those four S's for your girls. Yeah. And I had a really magical moment last night. This was after the cat fight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the literal cat fight. (laughs) Yes. Yoda cat, cat fight. Um, Yeah. And the Dora thing. And I was at my laptop working on, you know, this with you for today. Yeah. And I was thinking about my mother and about her attachment style and what it was like growing up. And then I heard... My daughter's playing a book in the other room, and my mother had sent them a book where she recorded herself oh, that's saying, um, now I lay me down to oh. sleep. And I could hear my mother's voice yeah. saying it, and I could hear the little, like, catch in her throat. Yeah. And it was just that perfect—I mean, these are those magical universe yeah. moments of, like, oh— she has always tried her hardest, uh-huh. and she does want to connect. Yeah. And so when there are those moments of connection, like for her, the bravery of recording her own voice yes. for this prayer book yes. to send to the girls, like that is her That's giving love. her all. That's love. And, and she loved you in yeah. those ways yes. and read those, you know, yeah. read those things to you. She didn't know how to express or access some of that stuff, but she, you know, she loved you as fiercely as she could in the way mm-hmm. she knew how. And for her to do that for her grandkids, I think that's one of the things that's really cool, too, is that sometimes, you know, she may have had relational experiences in the interim since the time of mm-hmm. raising you that have changed her brain. And so she may mm-hmm. have greater capacity, too, mm-hmm. which is so exciting. Where can all of our listeners find you? <laughs> They can find me at tinabryson.com. I want to just say one more thing, and that is, you know, lots of times as a parent, we don't know what to do in the moment. We don't know what the right thing to say is. We don't know, you know, if we're doing the right thing. And I think for me, this idea of helping a kid 
making sure I'm not the source of terror, making sure I'm not the one creating distance and disconnection, making sure I'm not the one that's making them unsoothed, all those things. This idea of the four S's is like a North Star for me. It's like always the right answer. So I think for me, it's always that front burner, and I'm mixing all my metaphors now, but it is. It's like that North Star. It's what guides me. It's what my husband needs from me. It's what my best friend needs from me. It's what my mom needs from me. It's what I need for myself. And, you know, I I stand by what I said at the beginning to say, you know, it can kind of clear out all the stuff around, you know, this hyper-parenting. We think we have to do all these things. Like, I'm even worried that parents are going to sign their kids up for mindfulness classes and it's going to become competitive mindfulness. Like, my kid's more mindful than your mind. I mean, LA, we're already there, aren't we? We're so there. That's a great point. All that stuff that we think we have to do for our kids, we don't need to do that. And for some of us, we're distracted and checked out and we're on our devices too much and all these things. And the answer for both uh, swings of those pendulum is, our kids need us to show up in the moment. And so I think this, it's, I stand by what I say, which is it's, we can simplify what our kids need most from us is to be present, is to show up in the moment. And that's really simple, but it's really hard to do. And so the last thing I want to say is that we need to make sure we have people in our own lives that show up for us that help us feel the four S's so that we have the capacity to be able to do that and to know that we're not going to do it perfectly. The science shows if we do it about 30% of the time, predictably, our kids can have secure attachments. So there's a lot of generous room for error Mm. there. So we can show up for ourselves, um, find people that show up for us so that we can show up for our kids and be present. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to follow us on social media, especially on Instagram, at Atomic Moms. And please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you're in a Facebook mom group and you loved this conversation, share it in a post. Uh, You can find links to our episodes always at AtomicMoms.com and also on any podcast app. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms.